This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Molecule, the world's first molecular air purifier that reduces symptoms for allergy and asthma sufferers. For $75 off your first order, visit molecule.com and enter the discount code FOOL. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick and I'm joined... As always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool, it's the August Mailbag featuring the musical stylings of Ross Anderson. Hello. (laughs) This month, we'll answer your questions about life insurance, replacing a 529 account, investing in silver and violins, and what's in the S&P 500. All that and more in this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Hey, Ross. How you doing? I'm doing great. Hey, thanks for coming back. Absolutely. Thank you for asking. For those who are new to the show and aren't familiar with you, who are you? And what do you do here? Uh, I am a certified financial planner, and I work with the Motley Fool Wealth Management Group. A sister company of the Motley Fool. Correct. Uh, So, we are a sister company. We have a personal portfolio service, managed money, uh, as well as financial planning. So, I'm here to... uh, I guess riff and chime with you guys, and uh, I don't know what I just said. Those words don't make any sense. I don't know what I'm saying, but <laughs> I riff love and it. Chime. It's days. It's days. <laughs> no, I, it sounded really cool until you backtracked there. Yeah, I, I like I, it. So I'm here just to hang out with you guys and answer some questions for people. All right. Well, let's get into it. The first question is from Linda. I have a friend who is 61 years old and not where he'd like to be regarding his retirement. He has limited funds and isn't sure how best to invest them. He has a mutual fund, but the fees nearly outpace his earnings. He's considering buying silver, but is wondering if it's as good an investment as he's been told. Do you have advice as to what his best plan of action might be? Well, Linda, the first thing I would say to your friend is that here at The Motley Fool, when it comes to investing, we tend to recommend what Warren Buffett calls productive assets. Things that produce cash flow, produce goods and services, and have a flow of income and earnings that generally increases with inflation. In other words, businesses. And the reason we like that is because historically, as long as you hold on for a long enough time frame, you're probably going to make money. Silver does not meet that criteria. First of all, it's a chunk of metal, just like gold. Some people value it, some people don't. But over the long term, you may not make money. And if you just look at the history of silver, for example, so it hit about $50 back in the early 1980s and then fell to $5 Whoa. and stayed there for decades. It got back up in the early 2010s to about 50 because, as you may remember, people were really afraid of inflation and what all the, the Fed's moves after the Great Recession were going to cause all this inflation. Drove up the price of silver and gold. Where is it now? It's dropped from 50 down to 15 So. Over the long term, holding on to silver or gold or many precious metals just doesn't turn out so well. So I would recommend to your friend, number one, avoid silver or gold. I would instead focus on a low-cost mutual fund. If he has a mutual fund that's not working out well for him, he should definitely get out of it. But look for a low-cost mutual fund. An index fund is perfectly fine. If he's very behind in his retirement savings, he probably should consider retiring later, working probably till 70, if not later. That's the best thing he could probably do for his retirement, but definitely avoid gold and silver. Our next question comes to us from Carrie. My husband and I are in our early 40s and have three rental properties that earn us 55000 as reported on Form 1099. 
I would prefer to not have this income included as taxable income. I heard about freelancers setting up a solo 401k where you can contribute 100% of your income up to $18,500. But I'm not sure if we would be considered self-employed. Can you contribute to an employer 401k and solo 401k in the same year? Also, is there such a thing as a solo Roth 401k? We have a Roth 401k through an employer, but had to stop contributing due to income restrictions. Okay, so there is a lot to unpack in that question for Carrie, and a couple of things I just want to make sure we straighten out. Uh, so, first of all, when you're looking at a Roth IRA, Roth IRAs have an income cap to them, where if uh, you're making too much money, they stop allowing you to contribute to them. Roth 401ks actually don't suffer from that same thing. So, if you have a Roth 401k option available to you, you are always able to defer up to the 18000 500 that you can into a traditional 401k into a Roth 401k as long as you've got that option or the catch up if if you're uh, beyond age 50. So um, that's the first thing. So I, w- I want to make sure that Carrie knows that she could still do the Roth 401k if she thinks that that's a good option. However, if she wants to set up a solo K or an individual 401k or any of the monikers that they go by, they can set that up also as a Roth. You could have a Roth solo K if you wanted to. Uh, your income or the amount of money that you can contribute to it, though, doesn't necessarily change. You're able to defer $18,500 of your income per year, regardless of how many plans that you have. Now, where this gets a little bit complicated is that you could do, as the employer, a profit share. She could do a profit sharing plan and contribute a percentage of the business earnings. Um, you could also do that in a SEP IRA, for example. That may be easier and cheaper to set up and administer. Uh, and, and so the SEP is going to be pre-tax money. You can't do a Roth SEP IRA. And now that I've got everybody totally, totally <laughs> confused. So, so if the goal here was to do some Roth money and some pre-tax money to defer the income, because uh, Carrie mentions that that she's not wanting to pay the taxes on that rental income. She could maybe consider doing a SEP IRA for the rental properties as a self-employed person, easy to administer, low cost, and going back to the Roth 401k through the employer and sort of getting both of those options at the same time. Yeah, and and she said, you know, she'd prefer not to have this income included as taxable income. If she's going to put it into some sort of retirement account, it has to be a traditional because if Correct. you put it in a Roth, it is taxable in the year you receive it. The benefit is that the money comes out tax-free as long as you file the rules. Exactly. Now, the thing on, on the pre-tax anything is that you're not going to avoid these taxes forever. Uh, it feels good to eliminate them now. And, and the standard thinking is that if you're going to be in retirement when you're taking the money out, you're in a lower tax bracket. That's not always true. So I'm not always a proponent of put everything in pre-tax that you can to get the lowest tax bill this year. Um, but if that's what they're they're trying to do, uh, a SEP or a traditional will really kind of give you that flexibility. Yeah, and I would it just finally say, Gary, if if you have someone who does your taxes a CPA, you might want to talk to her or him about that because she can talk through the differences between the SEP and the solo 401k and any other options you have. Without a doubt, before making any of those decisions, uh, a tax professional is recommended. Yep. Next question comes to us from Joe from Denver. My question is about two seemingly conflicting rules of thumb about how much someone should have saved for retirement. The first says that you should have 10 times your salary saved by retirement. The second says your annual withdrawal rate in retirement should be about 4%, which implies you should actually have saved 25x your salary by retirement. That's a huge difference. Am I missing something? Can you straighten this out for me? 
Well, Joe, the 4% rule is just about how much you can safely withdraw from your portfolio in the first year of retirement, and then you would adjust that dollar amount every year for inflation. It doesn't factor in your other sources of income. It doesn't factor in how much your income needs will drop in retirement. Um, it's just about how much you can take from your portfolio. So, if you were to say that you needed $50,000 a year from your portfolio in retirement, you can multiply that by 25 to get $1.25 million, which is a rough goal based on the 4% rule. And I say rough because there are actually some shortcomings with this whole 4% rule, which maybe we'll get into one day in this very podcast. But for now, it's a good rule of thumb. Now, the 10 times your salary rule of thumb is very different. It factors in how much you'll receive from Social Security as well as how much income needs will actually drop after you retire. I mean, most people can get by on 70 to 80% of what they needed while they were working, largely because, number one, you're no longer paying payroll taxes. Number two, you're no longer contributing to your 401k. There might be some business-related or work-related expenses that go away. But basically, many experts have analyzed, put all this together, and come up with this rule of thumb that says you shouldn't retire until you have 10 times your household income saved up. Now, other people have looked at it and come up with other numbers. Some put it at 12. Um, my personal, that's where T. Rowe Price is, and I think their, their analysis is pretty good because the, the amount that you need saved earlier in life is lower, but they expect you to really ramp up your savings later in life, which I think is realistic for people. Um, but regardless, I think shooting for about 10 to 12 of your household income is what you should have before you retire. That said, when it comes to that point when it's actually time for you to decide, don't rely on a rule of thumb. Definitely spend the money to see a good, qualified, fee-only financial planner decide whether you are actually ready to retire. All right, next question comes from Rod. I've heard Bro say many times, money you're going to need in the next five years should not be in the stock market. Read it in your best lecturing dad voice. Oh, I'm sorry. Money you're going to need in the next five years should not be in the stock market. Is that an impersonation of me or your dad? Uh, it's, it's kind of an impersonation of an oldie timey man on Wall Street shaking his finger at us all. But I don't know. Was that good? That was good. Yeah, okay. I liked it. I'm guessing that's because he believes the risk of a down market downturn outweighs the reward of a surging market. Well, bro, I currently have six hundred thousand in a brokerage account that I plan to use in four and a half years to buy a condo after I retire. If I take that money out of the market now, I will owe the state 5% in capital gains taxes. However, if I wait until after I retire, I will owe 0% in state taxes because I'll be moving to Nevada, which doesn't tax capital gains. So, in my case, do the rewards of leaving my money in the market outweigh the risks since I'll automatically gain 5%? Well, let's have Ross answer that first to see what he thinks. So I let, let's first start on this question by talking about why we have that five-year rule, or why we talk about wanting to wait five years or not have any money at risk that you're going to need in the next five years, and that is because inside five years you have a pretty high level of uncertainty in terms of what your outcome is going to be in the stock market. Uh, so if you're willing to invest for 20 years long, and we're just talking about the S&P 500. Uh, U.S. large-cap stock market returns. Over 20 years, your range of outcomes is between 7% annually in gains and 17% annually in gains. There's never been a 20-year period in our history that stocks have lost money over that period. If you get to 10 years, that range actually expands. And so, you've had as much as 19% annually over a 10% 
period or a loss of 1% annually. So even over a 10-year period, there has historically been a small chance that you could lose money, but the odds are very much in your favor that you won't. By the time you get to 5, it could be as high as 28 or as low as 3, negative 3. And so as you get to 1, and this is the really important one, over a one-year period, invested in stocks, you could make as much as 47% or lose as much as 39%. That's what we've historically seen. So what you're doing is you're basically betting that 5% in taxes that you want to save that the market won't go through one of those losing periods between now and then. Uh, I don't know that I'm comfortable with that. 5% is a healthy amount that you could save in taxes. but it's not a lot compared to what you could potentially lose if we actually saw a big correction or, or a downdraft in the stock market over that time period. So I wouldn't necessarily have you do that. Um, I, I would start to at least take some of that risk off the table. It doesn't have to be all at once. doesn't have to be immediate. Uh, but four and a half years, a lot of things could happen in the stock market. And the question that I would ask yourself is, if something happens in that time frame, are you flexible with when you buy a condo? If you're yeah. if waiting two years is no big deal, then maybe the answer changes because that that could kind of be a, a moving target for your time horizon. But if it's got to be four and a half years on the dot, we're moving, it's going to happen. I would start taking some of that risk down because I don't think five percent's worth it. Yeah, there's always a question too of if you have enough for your goal, why take more risk? I mean, if his overall finances are in good shape, if he has a good size portfolio, maybe he'll get a pension or something like that, and he has enough to buy the condo already, why take the risk? I should say that five-year rule, by the way, that I always use is is pretty conservative. You'll get other Motley Fool analysts here who will say, I'm fine with investing in the stock market if I just have a three-year time frame. In the end, I think it comes down to risk tolerance, and as Ross said, what are the consequences if the market does tank and does not recover by the time that four and a half years rolls on? If you're going to be fine, and you don't mind the risk, okay. If that would be devastating to you, and you have the money saved, why not just reduce your risk? I mean, if, if we're looking at the most recent big crash, if you were right now standing on the peak of 2007 U.S. stocks and like looking over the edge with a uh, with perfect 2020 vision, it took till 2012 to get back to even. Right. Uh, that was a full five year window, and that's an abnormal period. That's not what we see every time. That shouldn't be happening once a decade. Um, but it has happened. It's happened in pretty recent history. You know, Try and keep that in, in, in the front of your mind if you're making that sort of a choice. Next question comes from Rita. My husband started playing violin in January 2018, and he's completely smitten. He's taking lessons on Skype. He's gone to a workshop in Italy. He's gotten four music-related tattoos. He had no tattoos before. (laughs) Oh, I love it. He's decided he wants to become a luthier once he retires in three years. He's 58 years old. Now he wants to take out a loan from his 401k to invest, she put in quotes, in a really good violin. I think it's wonderful that he's found something he's so passionate about, but what do you think about investing in musical instruments? Uh, so, first of all, I also think it's wonderful that he's found this whole new hobby and he has his second career in mind. That's pretty cool. Uh, that said, I'm less excited about taking out a 401k loan to buy a violin. So, first thing you need to understand with a 401k loan is they, they do have to be paid back, and, and pretty much immediately you have to start making payments. Depends on your plan. It could be quarterly or monthly. It's often taken out of your paycheck. So just know that you don't just get to keep that money out forever. You have to pay it back. If you don't, it's considered a distribution. You pay taxes and penalties if you're not yet 59 and a half. Um, oh, he's so, almost though. He's 58. Right. So he's almost there. Um, the other thing about it is, uh, 
despite my daughter playing violin in the school orchestra, I don't really know anything about the future appreciation value of a violin, so I don't know. But I do know that when you look, generally speaking, at the investment value of collectibles, and there are whole indexes based on collectible wine, stamps, things like that, it's very erratic. He's clearly not an expert because he's relatively new at this. So I, I'm not sure that he has great insight into the investment value of a violin either. So that also um, gives me pause. And finally, the other thing is just, I don't know the whole situation, but if you have to take out a loan against your 401k to be able to buy the violin, that is a hint to me that maybe your overall finances aren't in completely solid space exactly yet. You might want to work on that first. I'm still paying for my wife's tuba that she... <laughs> Uh, I'll tell me for, more. Well, so, yeah. So my, my wife studied music, music education, uh, and we have a tuba in our house that probably hasn't been touched in many years. How much is a tuba? Uh, I think. Do you one, mind me asking? Uh, I, I believe, <laughs> or is it if I you mean, have so, to ask? Well, it, it, this is sort of lumped into into all of the student loans, but oh. I, I believe it was a five figure price tag on the tuba. Wow! <laughs> so. And has it gone up in value? Have you been following the prices of the tuba market? I doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't follow the tuba market well, but uh, if we were able to get back a percentage of that value, I'd be quite happy. But I don't, I don't think she can sell it. I don't think she can part ways with it, which is really the tough thing. You don't buy a beautiful, collectible, high-end instrument because you want to sell it later. Mm-hmm. You're buying it because you want to love it and play it and, and enjoy it with your passion. So to think of it as an investment, I think you're justifying paying for a really nice instrument that's probably not really being treated like an investment. Yeah. This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Molecule. Molecule is the world's first molecular air purifier that reduces symptoms for allergy and asthma sufferers. Molecule has introduced a breakthrough science that is finally capable of destroying air pollutants at a molecular level. Molecule, I know, you guys stood up and took notice. Molecule makes a real difference for asthma and allergy sufferers, helping them better cope with their conditions and significantly reducing their symptoms. One customer reportedly said that after using Molecule in her home, that she was able to breathe through her nose for the first time in 15 years. Molecule is easy to use and has a sleek and clean design. We got to try one out here at The Fool. And we let um, Jim Mueller and his wife borrow one. And it's here's this funny side note. His wife is from Hawaii. And Molecule is spelled M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E dot com. And because she's from Hawaii, she thought it was pronounced Molecule. <laughs> so, anyway, it's pronounced Molecule, but with a K. Anyway, they suffer from allergies. Jim had one in his house for a day. And then I asked him, I was like, how'd it go? And he's like, we already bought two of them. Oh, really? Yeah. For $75 off your first order, visit M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E dot com and enter the promo code FOOL. That's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E dot com and promo code FOOL. Next question comes to us from Guarav. I'm 33 years old and have a two-month-old daughter. Could you please share your thoughts on variable universal life insurance? It has been recommended to me that I should buy a vol policy rather than contribute to a 529 since the money from the policy can be used for any needs that come up. I've tried to research vols, but I can't find a simple enough explanation on the logistics of it. Okay, so uh, I think that he's probably been talking to a, an insurance salesman. Very, very few other people uh, are going to be talking about the benefits of, of, of the VUL product like that. So uh, basically what this is, 
this is two things kind of mashed together. You've got a life insurance policy, uh, and you've got an investing account that's kind of attached to it. And the way that it's supposed to work is that, uh, let's say your cost of insurance, so that you can protect your your income, your future livelihood, uh, is fifty bucks a month. But instead of paying fifty bucks a month, you're going to pay. 250 bucks a month. And that extra 200 is going to go into this account. It's going to become invested and it's going to do wonderful things for you. The way that they're sold is often talking about two benefits. Number one, that the withdrawals are going to be tax-free. And what they're really saying is that you can take a loan against right. the money that's accumulating in this policy and that that will be tax-free. Now, that's kind of a gotcha because no loans are tax taxable, right? You don't take a mortgage out on your house and then pay Taxes on the loan, right? Right. So that that's always kind of a an interesting uh, little spot that insurance folks like to talk about. Uh, but the other problem with those is that if you don't have a lot of money in that side account that's kind of accumulated, uh, you can actually put the insurance at risk when you start to take some of that money out. So my preference is. If it's an investment, treat it like an investment. If you need insurance, treat it like insurance. Uh, I think you're much better off if you need insurance looking at a term life policy that is low cost, very straightforward, uh, and then continuing to save into another vehicle. Now, whether that's the 529 uh, or if you just want to save into a taxable brokerage account, if having that flexibility is really important to you, you don't have to use the 529. You do get a tax benefit because it is meant for education. Um, and that now includes some uh, pre-higher education. So right. you, you can use that money now uh, towards some expenses before college even. So the 529's gotten a little bit more flexible. I very, 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 very much don't like the idea of a VUL or variable life policy for education funding, because uh, I, I don't think it's the best tool for that. Yeah. First of all, I think he's doing two very important things, very smart things. He's looking at life insurance, which is what you should do once you have a kid, and looking at saving for college. So yes, hooray! Good for awesome. good for you for doing that. Um, the five twenty nine. The benefit, of course, is that the money comes out of the account tax free if you use it for qualified expenses. And you know what the insurance salesman might be saying as well. If you need it for something else, you're gonna have to pay taxes and penalties. But that's actually only on the growth. Any money that you put in yourself, you get to take out tax and penalty free. So it's not as bad as some people say. And if for some reason your daughter doesn't go to college, it can always be transferred to other relatives, yourself included, if you want to go back to school later. So it's got a, actually got a lot of flex, flexibility to it. Our next question comes from Marianne. I am a 35 year old single woman who has worked in the nonprofit sector for my entire career. Read low salary. I have no debt and currently have about 9000 in a 403b, no employer match, 1000 in a Roth IRA, and 5000 in a traditional savings account. My precious grandmother passed away earlier this year, and I just learned that she has left me $10,000. I'm not convinced that I should be a homeowner in the next five years, as I enjoy the lifestyle that renting affords. I'm very encouraged by Bro's stance that homeownership does not have to be a part of a successful retirement plan. But I'm also starting to freak out about how little I have saved so far. I'm contemplating what kind of account I should invest this money in. How would you approach this situation? Also, I assume I will need to pay taxes on this income. How can I minimize that? Oh, Marianne, you're 35 and worrying about your money. You're great. You're I feel great. like I feel like I want to tell her straight out. Hey, the fact that you're worrying about this at 35 is is a good sign. Yes, I think so too. And first of all, the good news is that you likely won't pay any taxes on the inheritance. So, if your grandmother's estate owed taxes, it's paid 
by the estate, not by the beneficiaries. There are some states, I think there's only six, that actually do have an inheritance tax that beneficiaries have to, play, have to pay, but there are high exemption amounts on that. So generally speaking, you probably won't have to pay any taxes. You might want to check to see the laws of your state in the state in which your grandmother lived, but you're probably fine. Um, and it's great that you're thinking about your retirement at age 35. I'd mentioned earlier some of these studies that say that you need 10 to 12 times your salary before you retire. For people who are 35, they point at you should have accumulated about one or two times your salary. That's a lot, though. That's asking a lot. So don't be overly freaked out about that. Um, You still have at least 30 years until you retire. But I would definitely say the place for this money that you've inherited is for retirement. I would start by maxing out a Roth IRA this year. The max amount is $5,500. And then just put the rest in a cash account until January 1st, and then put the rest in the Roth IRA. Um, You could max out the Roth this year and then put the rest in your 403B. The problem is that the average 403B stinks. You might have a good one. So if you have a good one, you could put money in there. But I just know from experience that the average 403B is not very good. I think it's better just to have it on the side. Then put the whole thing in a Roth. And the other good thing about that is if you ever need the money before retirement, you can take the contributions to a Roth IRA out tax and penalty-free. Not the earnings, but the contributions. So in case you ever have emergency, you decide to buy a house, you decide to get married, and you want to have to pay for the wedding, you have more flexibility than if you put the money in a 403b. Next question comes to us from Clark. I'm 22 years old and graduated from college in 2017. I just reached the six-month mark at my current company, and I'm now eligible to benefit from the 401k match. Hooray! I've been subscribed to Rule Breakers and Stock Advisor for almost a year and put as much as I can on my paycheck into a brokerage account. Oh, that's awesome. I also have an emergency fund per the advice from this podcast. Hey! I know. High five, bro. Nice. With the help of Motley Fool, in my first year of investing, I have an overall return of about 19%. Wow. Okay. My question is, should I contribute to my 401k just enough to receive the match and then continue investing in my brokerage account, or should I transition to aggressively contributing to my 401k and invest on my own less? All right. So first of all, Clark, congratulations. Yes, absolutely. Uh, that at, at 22, number one to to be asking the question, to be thinking the way that you are, I love it. Uh, you, you're on the right track. Um, so the first thing that I would tell you is that certainly uh, you should contribute enough to the 401k to receive the match. It's free money. Take it. Don't let them leave that on the table. Uh, beyond that, my instincts, and I don't know your salary or anything like that, but my instinct would be that you should be looking at a Roth IRA first and then to the brokerage account. Uh, And I say that for two reasons. Number one, uh, 22, you're likely going to have a lot of goals that come up between now and retirement, things that you're going to want to use some of those investment dollars for, like a down payment on a home, like anything else that comes up along the way. A tuba. Right. It could be a tuba. (laughs) Probably not. But uh, you're going to have a lot of things that you're going to ultimately want to invest for, even if you don't see them immediately on your, your horizon. The four, or the the 401k is just not going to give you the flexibility to get to those funds. The Roth IRA, for example, has a provision where you can take that money out as a first-time home buyer, uh, or a portion of that money out as a first-time home buyer. So it gives you a little bit more room to work. It's going to give you also tax-free growth, tax-free withdrawals, assuming we wait until retirement or use one of those uh, exceptions. Uh, and you're probably at 22. Again, no idea what your your salary and income is, but you're probably in the Front end of your earnings career, right? right. So your your salary is probably going to rise, making some of those pre tax deferrals like the four hundred one k more beneficial to you later in life. So 
I'd say Roth IRA probably first, and then the taxable account, because it's going to give you the most flexibility for the things that I think you're going to use the money for. Next question comes from Jean and Becky. I'm 72, and my wife is 71. I have a question about Bro's report on the status of Social Security from the July 17 episode. He reported that the program will run out of full funding by about 2034, if not before. He said something to the effect that those in their 50s and approaching retirement could count on getting only about 75% of their benefit. My question is, what about those of us already in Social Security, presuming we will still be around in 2034, in addition to facing creeping inflation, could we also be facing a benefits cut? Right. So, he is referring to when I talked about the annual trustees report from the Social Security Administration. And um, they basically said the trust funds will be depleted by 2030s. I think it was, I guess it was 2034. 2034 but, but the year moves around every year, but it's always around there. And at that point, Social Security will be paid for by incoming payroll taxes, and it will only be enough to cover about three-quarters of projected benefits. And so, I think, actually, anyone in their 50s or younger should expect, should plan on getting less. Hopefully, that will not be the case, but I think it's just the prudent assumption. I have not heard any sort of discussions that involve improving and enhancing the Social Security program that cuts benefits for people who are already receiving it. So, I, I think anyone who is receiving benefits is probably going to be spared any change that happens. And there has to be change at some point, but I think anyone who's receiving benefits are probably okay. What's a bigger issue is something it touched on, and that is inflation. And every year, Social Security is adjusted for inflation. Sort of. Sort of, <laughs> right. Um, and it's based on, you know, the inflation you usually hear about in the news is the CPI for urban users, or the CPIU. It's actually different for Social Security. It's the CPIW. Some years it lags CPIU. It's been actually going a little faster this year. It's, at, it's currently at 3.2%. So, in fact, in 2019, it might be the first time Social Security gets an adjustment of 3% or more since 2012. But the problem is that many of the things that, social, that senior citizens spend money on actually grows at a rate faster, namely healthcare. So, you do have to pay attention to how your overall income stream is going to keep up with inflation, because Social Security is probably not going to do that. All right, next question comes to us from Mike. There seems to be a lot of rhetoric in today's financial reporting about management fees for mutual funds. I get it. Higher fees mean the consumer pays more and has less in savings. However, I feel that a fund's total return is what counts. As an example, if the total return of an actively managed mutual fund is 12% annualized and a passively managed index fund's total return is 10.5%, the higher fees for the actively managed fund are justified. As you know, 12% versus 10.5% annualized can make a big difference over an investor's lifetime. Am I thinking about this correctly? So I think Mike is thinking about this correctly. I mean, really, the the net of fee return, the amount that your account goes up, is really what's important. Um, you know, Motley Fool Wealth Management. We run a personal portfolios program. We manage money for people. So uh, you can you can paint me with that bias, but I, I think that is what we're trying to do as well: is to deliver on a net of fee basis to our clients at a level that's comfortable for their risk. So uh, I think he is looking at it the correct way. Um, the tough thing when you're looking at a manager uh, is trying to figure out where that manager's edge is coming from. How are they delivering the outperformance? Is it through taking exorbitant amounts of risk? Is it through discipline? Is you know looking at their track record? How long have they been a part of that fund? You know whether it's somebody that just opened a brand new product or they've just changed the manager. Those things are really important because a mutual fund, for example, doesn't have to go away if the person that was leading the charge 
gets fired or leaves or makes another choice. So um, understanding what's under the hood of that fund, how high is their turnover? Are they investing in a way that's consistent with your goals? I think that's what's most important. Uh, but those net of fee returns, that's what you should be measuring. Next question comes from Amar. Why do we follow the S&P 500? Why not the S&P 400 or the S&P 600? I do own SPY, which is what is that the ETF for the, the yes, spider index? Yes, the ETF that the... follows the S&P okay. 500. Which if I understand it right is an index of the top 500 companies. But who manages the fund and how often is it updated? Well, Mar, let's start with a little history. So the S&P 500 started out in life as the S&P Composite in 1923 and was really just a small handful of stocks. And then it was expanded to 90 stocks in 1926, and then 500 in 1957. So why 500? Because it was a combination of S&P's Industrial Index, which was 425 stocks, the Utility Index, which had 50 stocks, and the Retail Index, which had 25. At least all of this is according to Wikipedia. And if it's on Wikipedia... You know it's true. You know it's true. Uh, but so nowadays, though, the 500 stocks in the index are determined by the S&P Index Committee. So that's who determines what's in the index. And it's not necessarily the 500 biggest companies, though that's mostly the case. So the committee follows certain criteria. Berkshire Hathaway, for example, wasn't part of the index until 2010 because of liquidity issues. Its shares were so expensive. So it wasn't able to join the index until it had that 50 to 1 split of its B shares. Nowadays, perhaps the biggest named stock that's not in the S&P 500 is Tesla. Because it doesn't meet its quote the S and P's quote financial viability criteria. In other words, it just hasn't had been consistently shots profit- fired. Yes, exactly. That <laughs> hasn't been consistently profitable. Um, but so while the S and P 500 has come to represent the market, it's actually not the entire stock market. It's all large cap stocks. Um, and so actually, just recently, Vanguard, which was the first company to offer a publicly available S and P 500 index fund removed it from their 401k and replaced it with the total stock market fund because they believe that's more representative of the overall U.S. stock market. So this brings us to Amar's question about the S&P 400 and the S&P 600. Those are actual indexes that exist that track mid-cap stocks and small-cap stocks, respectively. So if you own the S&P 500 via SPY or any other index fund, adding the S&P 400 and the S&P 600, which you can do very easily through all kinds of ETFs, is actually, I think, a pretty good idea. In fact, we on the Motley Fools 401k committee are now looking at an S&P 600 index fund and looking at adding that to our plan. So I think that makes total sense. Finally, he asked about who manages SPY and how often it's updated. It's managed by State Street Global Advisors, and it's updated throughout the day because they put in a lot of time to make sure that it very closely tracks the S&P 500. And just as a fun fact, it was the very first exchange-traded fund listed in the U.S. becoming available in 1993. Oh. And uh, it has nine basis points, which at the time was very, very, very low. Nowadays, there are a handful of, of ETFs that have even lower expenses. Not that you should sell this one, but there are even lower cost options out there. So just to clarify, bro, so the 400 doesn't just mean it's a smaller subset of the S&P 500. Right, exactly. It's, it's not like the better 400. Yes, it's, you're it's a right. different 400 companies that right. they're looking at under a different criteria. Yes. They argued over it and they're like, "You know what? Can't we just add 100 more to the S&P 500?" And they're like, "Yeah, we'll call it the S&P 600." Yeah. And then they're like, "Oh my gosh, exactly. this is amazing." No. They're totally different stocks. Right. Okay. Final question comes from Joe Knoll over on Twitter. I have as much in my Roth with two stocks as I do in my 401k, about 1.3 million each. Is that too much? 
Is uh, one of those Amazon? I have a feeling one of those uh, is Amazon. <laughs> and the other's Netflix? Maybe, right? Maybe, if he's a Motley Fool subscriber. Uh, so this is a really interesting one, right? So if you were to look at you know the wealthiest people in the world, you're going to see people like Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos. In fact, just this July, it was determined by Bloomberg that Jeff Bezos is now the richest man in modern history, hmm. because now he's worth $150 billion. These folks got rich by just buying once. By basically, yeah. cons- they're over concentrated. They're very concentrated. <laughs> and, and you know, if at any point along the way someone came along and told these guys, you know, you should diversify. You shouldn't have more than ten percent of your portfolio in any of these companies. They would not be as wealthy as they are. That said, they are. Um, what would you say? Survival of the richest. I mean, it's <laughs> it's not something that most people should do. Um, so. I know there are many people here at The Motley Fool who have portfolios that are significantly concentrated in Amazon, in Netflix, in a lot of these companies, and they're very comfortable with that, and they know the risks involved. I don't think it's the best way for the average person, but I'm going to let Joe determine for himself whether that's right. Any, any financial planner that you went to would say, that's way too much. You only have to any, get rid- any Ross. Well, what do you say? Well, that's you, way too you, much. No, you know the. <laughs> I, I may have even said these exact words because I, I say this a lot to folks. But uh, the industry as a whole seems to come from a position of why take as any more risk than you would have to. If you've already re- if you've already achieved everything that you need to, if you could sit in cash and take zero risk whatsoever, and still meet your needs and never run out of money, why wouldn't you do that? Um, I think the fool and foolish investors tend to come at it from the other side, which is if you've taken care of those needs, if we've got our next five years' worth of needs in cash or something very safe, why not earn more? Hmm. And, and that's kind of what he's asking is, is, you know, so I don't really know the underlying situation. I don't know how much Joe needs for retirement or how much of his, you know, needs are represented by that portfolio. But by staying concentrated, he could earn exponentially more as an investor, but he's opening himself up to a lot of risk. The individual risk in a single company is very high. Uh, and so most of us are trying to find that right level between being over-diversified and just turning our portfolios into like global mush and the right number of securities, which two may be right for him, but but it's too, it's too few for most people. So the answer is... Joe, Joe needs to just check his gut. Out. A resounding, yes. we don't know. A resu- well, no, I mean, I'll tell you. I mean, if it were me, I would. That would be too much for me. That would be too much for me. Yeah. Um, and so, the, but it's up to. For every story you have about Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or anything, you're going to find people who had 90% of their portfolio in Lucent, in AIG. And Enron. I mean, there are all these other stories of these types of things. Earlier, I had a question about you know whether whether the guy who's going to retire should sell now so or wait so he can avoid the five percent capital gains tax. Um, I remember a story of a guy, uh, Phil Marty, who used to be a tax expert on our discussion boards, um, who very sadly passed away a few years ago. But it said like he he had something like fifty percent of his portfolio in Cisco. At right before the dot com bubble, and he didn't sell because he wanted to avoid the capital gains. And he said, "Well, the market took care of that because <laughs> then the stock went down so much, I didn't have any more capital yeah, that'll gains." That'll make sure there's no taxes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's just a tough call. Yeah. But good for you, Joe. You're it's a, good a fun position. problem. It's a fun problem to have, huh? Yeah. I've heard of worse problems. Yeah. All right. Good luck, Joe. All right, Ross. That's it. We covered all the questions. We did it. Let's go to the mailbag. <laughs> all right. So I've got a little bit of feedback. Uh, 
Actually, less feedback from people telling me I did stuff wrong than on previous episodes, so that's exciting. Uh, Rob over on Twitter wanted to let me know. Uh, I'm sure you'll hear this a bunch, but Mackinac, I pronounced it Mackinac uh, in an episode, is a French word pronounced Mackinac. The city nearby is a transliteration, anglicization of a Mackinac pronunciation. Goodness gracious. <laughs> Mackinac is a type of turtle that the island gets its name from, for whatever reason. So, sorry, I will never mispronounce Mackinac ever again. <laughs> Mackinac. Mackinac. It's a French word, so I need to blow out a puff of smoke and then... Le Mackinac. Le Mackinac. All right. Uh, okay, so we've got a ton. Look at all these postcards. Okay. Yay, postcards. Yay, it's so awesome. I, like, the front desk woman swears that they just get held back, and then all of a sudden um, we get them all. So uh, Robert went to Rochester, New York, or The Rock, as we call it in my husband's family. Nice. Uh, Zach went to the Spam Museum in what? Austin, Minnesota, and what? also sent us a fridge magnet. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay. Do they eat a lot of Spam in Minnesota? I, I think that must be the Spam Factory. I don't know. You can read all about it on the back. I'll do that. Although you're going, <laughs> you're going to. Bro's on his way to Hawaii soon, so you're going to see lots of Spam. They're really big on Spam in really? Hawaii. Yeah, they're really big. It's a. Uh, it, it goes back to the World War II. That, that's where I always think meat. of it from. Yeah. It is as a Hawaiian thing, but maybe not. Well, I didn't know. You're going to see. There's going to be when you go to a grocery store in Hawaii. Head to the spam aisle, and you're going to see all these options of spam. There's going to be nice. a lot of spam. Uh, good old shoots sent us a card from. Uh, I'm going to guess it's pronounced Bell Forshay, South Dakota, but I'm just guessing at the pronunciation. Melanie sent us a card from the eBay Open Conference in Las Vegas. Nice. Uh, we also have. We actually um, have two people that sent us postcards from Alabama because I guess on the previous show I said I've never gotten a card from Alabama, and so uh, you guys heard, including. Um, do you remember? We met Kevin and Karen when we were at the happy hour in D.C. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They sent us a card. Oh, hello. And then as did... <laughs> oh, hello, guard. And then we also got a card from uh, Paul, uh, who sent us a card from the Unclaimed Baggage Center, which is located in Scottsboro, Alabama. Who knew? Who knew? All right. We also got a card from the Cutler family, which went on a road trip from Pennsylvania to Utah. So they sent a card from Arches National Park. Beautiful. Uh, We have a card from Texas. Uh, Don't mess with Texas. Thanks to Rich. Yep, that's from Rich. Uh, we also have a card from Ogden. You, you guys have been going to Utah a lot. Uh, we have a card from Ogden, Utah, thanks to Steven. Um, he is out there doing the Spartan uh, Sprint Obstacle Course race, and wow. he placed third in his division. Wow. So, congrats. That's Very no impressive. joke. And then we also have, this is pretty magical here, it's a postcard from Mark from Caldwell, Idaho, which is where I went to high school. Oh, look at that. I know. Do you know this person? Oh, look at that. They're Christmas. Oh, this this does my heart good. Yeah, yeah. Do you so, know this person? No, Caldwell, it's not, no, it's, no. But like, is it like a friend of yours or is it just total coincidence that they sent it to you from Caldwell? It's total coincidence, coincidence that they sent it from Caldwell, Idaho, and that their handwriting looks exactly like my best friends from high school. That is Teresa's handwriting right there. A former guest on the show? Yeah, and former guest on the show. And she has a new book coming out soon. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah it's going to be about raising kids. Uh, 
Okay, so let's see. Was that all of them? That was all of them. That was all the postcards. Thank you, Doesn't everybody. that warm your heart to see like all these postcards from listeners? People love you guys. It really People, does. Well, you're a part of it, too. You're You've part of the previous. family. You're part of the Motley Fool Answers family. I, I can be part of both groups, because I'm part of the group that loves you guys. Aww. That's why I'm here. Aww. And I'm part of the show today. Thank you. Thanks, man. And thank you to you guys for sending us your postcards from everywhere. Um, if you are a listener and would like to send us a postcard, we are still accepting them, gladly. Our address is uh, Motley Fool, 2000 Duke Street, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. Uh, Ross, I want to thank you again for coming on the show and helping us tackle these questions. Always a pleasure. It is always a pleasure. I'm glad you agree. The show is edited spammingly by Rick Engdahl. Uh, our email is answers at fool.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter and places like that if you want to get us your questions for next month's mailbag episode. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.